almost nobody would pay $20 an episode to listen to Akimbo. Almost everybody would consider paying a penny an episode to listen. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about micropayments, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. The biggest shift I've found is now my own stories and the stories that I really want to tell are bubbling to the surface. I can't stop seeing them. Whether you're just starting out or you're an experienced storyteller, this is a place where your stories will get better in a very short time, guaranteed. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. Find out more at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. How are we going to pay for all of this content? The internet is jammed to the top with content. More content is created every day on the internet than was created in the entire world in 1840, maybe even in 1940. There is an explosion of it, and most of it isn't any good. Lots of it is seeking the largest possible audience. There's a reason for that, a reason beyond the vanity of having a hit. And it has to do with how we monetize our content. The thing is that attention is scarce. We can't make any more attention. Everybody only gets 24 hours a day. That's if they pull an all-nighter. And what's happened is that we have split attention finer and finer and finer. And so you would sell somebody a book that takes 12 or 15 or 18 hours to read, and now a tweet might be too long because attention keeps trying to find yet another thing to entertain us. But you can't pay the bills with attention. And so along the way, we invented advertising. Advertising says that advertisers will pay for small slices of attention because they need that attention because they believe that their ads can turn into money. But the way that ads are sold is on a CPM basis. CPM stands for cost per thousand. Don't ask me why we're using Roman numerals. Cost per thousand which means you need a thousand bits of attention to be able to sell one unit of advertising. And that might be for 50 bucks, 20 bucks, $2. If you're going to get $2 every time you interrupt a thousand people and you want to make a living, you need millions and millions of people. Well, advertising, if you think about it, is a form of micropayment because what is happening is the consumer of information is saying, I only have a few hours of attention unallocated 
today. I will allocate it to, I don't know, the Boing Boing blog. I will allocate it to reading my stream in Instagram. And I get that the cost of this, of all this handcrafted content, the cost is my attention. And I get the fact that the publisher of the information is going to turn around and sell some of my attention to an advertiser. So I've made a micropayment, a couple seconds of my attention in exchange for a funny joke, in exchange for an insight. But this is really unwieldy. It's unwieldy because advertisers don't always behave very well. It's unwieldy because we don't want to be tracked and we don't want to have our privacy taken, but at the same time, we don't want to see irrelevant ads. And it's unwieldy because we don't know exactly how many ads somebody needs to see before they buy something or not. And as a result, the micropayments of attention are muddy indeed. The content creator has no assurance that it's all going to work. The advertiser has no assurance. The person who's trading their precious attention ends up wasting enormous amounts of it. And so we go back to this idea of money. And as David Graeber has pointed out, money was invented as a way to square up debts. Debts came before money. But once we had gone to the trouble of inventing money, we now had this way, this fairly low overhead way to give someone a nickel, a dime, even a penny in person. That if you are at the newsstand, you can put, if it's 1910, three cents down and get yourself a newspaper in exchange, a micropayment. These transactions were sort of anonymous, but they were also certain. You knew you had three pennies and you knew those three pennies were going to go away. The vendor knew that they could trade you a newspaper for three pennies, that the people who created the content could do the math. Now, along the way, all sorts of things break down. One of them is, it costs more than a penny to make a penny. Another one is, handling pennies is ridiculously expensive. They weigh a lot. They have to be sorted. They have to be stored. They have to be transported. It just doesn't pay to buy something for three pennies anymore. Country after country is working to get rid of low-denomination paper money because paper money gets ripped. Paper money is also hard to sort and stack. Paper money can be counterfeited unless you start putting systems into place. And so we end up with electronic money. Electronic money is different than Bitcoin. We'll talk about that in a second. But electronic money is simply a way to move pennies, nickels, and dollars around much more efficiently by using tokens, little bits of information on some sort of internet to keep track of where the money has gone. Well, it turns out, thanks to a whole bunch of reasons having to do with systems, bureaucracies, and fraud, that it's really sort of expensive to do this at scale. That microtransactions have been a jungle of failure for 50 years. In 1963, Ted Nelson, the father of hypertext, the person most responsible for the idea that you can click on a word and it will take you somewhere else, which is how the web actually works, also started working on micropayments. Yes, it's been more than 50 years. One of the founders of hypermedia also was one of the founders of microtransactions. 
But even though we are surrounded by clicks and links and more clicks, microtransactions are still in their infancy. Digital, IBM, companies you've never heard of, have tried and failed to create electronic microtransactions. My favorite one was called Millicent because it's a pun, like Millicent, someone's name, and Millicent, like a really small fraction of a cent. And part of the problem is getting money in and getting money out. Because doing an asynchronous financial transaction for a nickel costs too much. There are too many things that have to go right for it to work. And if one thing goes wrong, the person in the middle can lose a lot of money. A few years ago, I was talking to the general counsel of PayPal. Why was I talking to him? Because PayPal wanted my passport in order for me to take some money out, money that was mine. And I couldn't understand why did they need my passport for me to take out money that had been received from ticket sales? Well, when I got the guy on the phone, he explained to me what was going on. Every single day, there are hundreds and hundreds of hackers in countries around the world who do nothing but try to figure out how to scam PayPal. Because if you can do it a little, then you can instantly scale to do it a lot. And PayPal can lose 10, 20, 30 million dollars in one day to one scam of people trying to take money out of the system. So what to do about this need for microtransactions? Because lots of people will pay a penny, but no one's going to pay 100 bucks. And if it's that kind of situation, what the content creator usually ends up doing is charging nothing. And if you're charging nothing because you can't charge a penny, then you need to figure out how to monetize it. And traditionally, the only way to do that has been by selling ads, this ineffective way of turning attention into money. Well, here's one thought. Frequent flyer miles are a way for the airlines to have a very low-cost microtransaction that they can give you 20 miles for doing this, 50 miles if you get this credit card transaction, et cetera, et cetera. The reason it's so cheap for them is fraud isn't really a big problem. And the reason that fraud isn't really a big problem is that the miles aren't worth very much, that they are running a lottery. Someday, an attorney general is going to realize that those miles you have, they're not guaranteed that you can turn them into a first-class ticket because the number of tickets available is dwarfed by the number of miles in circulation. It's sort of random whether you're going to get those few seats that you can get. But it feels to the person who's engaging in these transactions around miles like they are exchanging something of value. They've created a microtransaction. Another microtransaction, this was something that I invented when I was briefly at Yahoo. Yahoo at the time was the center of the internet. And the question before us was, how do you remain at the center of the internet? History has shown that they didn't. But here's what we came up with. What would happen if every time you clicked on anything in Yahoo, an ad or content, you got a few simoleons? That's what we called our microtransaction currency. So you could chalk up simoleons all day long. We could sell advertisers simoleons. So they could say, click on this ad, you'll get 50 simoleons. Whereas if you click on this one, you'll only get 10. Then we could sell other sites the ability to offer simoleons. We could create a whole currency like frequent flyer miles where people were trading their attention via clicks 
for this microcurrency. And then how to turn that microcurrency into something of value? Well, this is the part that I was able to get a patent on. We were going to have an auction every month. And the way the auction would work is there'd be really, really valuable prizes, millions and millions of dollars of prizes. At the beginning, we would pay for them, but over time, I think most of them would get donated for publicity purposes. And you could bid in an auction to win those prizes. You could form syndicates to share simoleons so that you would win the auction. And the deal was that every month, all the simoleons would disappear and it would start over again. Or perhaps all the bids, whether you won or not, would be taken out of circulation. Either way, it was a self-leveling system. We could inflate the simoleon as much as we wanted because it would all even out at the auction. That didn't work either. We never actually built it, but there were elements of it that began to make sense. Let's consider for a minute the example of Patreon. Patreon is a different sort of microtransaction. The deal is simple. Put some money in, $10 or $20, and then Patreon will divvy it up based on the output of the person that you are supporting. So an artist could say, commit to paying me 10 cents for every song I release. Over time, that adds up. But it is not actually a microtransaction as much as it is a chance for someone, a patron, to put up money hold it in escrow, and then pay the creator over time. This has sort of worked. Now, it is not a system of currency, but let's keep running down this idea of trading attention and money to the people who create content. What about Netflix? Netflix, if you think about it, is a microtransaction platform. How? Well, you pay a monthly fee and Netflix is watching really carefully how you are spending your attention. Which shows are you watching? The shows that people watch the most are the shows they renew. The genres that people watch the most are the genres they make new shows in. That money, the money spent making shows, goes to the creators of content. There is no advertising model built into Netflix. What there is is an effortless way for you to aim your attention and allow Netflix to turn your attention into money. One of the challenges that traditional microcurrencies have had is they have thought about it like a bank. Money in, money out. Transactions. What if we think about it slightly differently? So here's a microtransaction system that I thought of a few years ago and again haven't built out. What would happen if, like Netflix, you could buy a subscription? a passport. And that passport, $20 a month, let's say, gives you access not to what's on Netflix, but to what's on thousands and thousands and thousands of websites. And what we're going to do is track where you spent your time on these websites. And then we will allocate to these websites a prorated share of your monthly fee. You could then create an entire infrastructure of sites that have reserved a section of what they create for people who hold a passport. Your passport costs you the same amount each month, no matter what you pay attention to. That transaction's easy to make. We can make that transaction with a credit card. But then the central passport authority, keeping track of where you are spending your time, allocates that money to the people 
who are spending it. And how to go to market? Well, the thought was any one of the sites that sells a passport to a new user keeps the first month's revenue. So each site now has a big incentive to promote the passport for two reasons. One, more passport holders mean more people making micropayments. And two, the bounty for getting someone into the program is significant. But alas, this was back in the days when the web was open and new, and it felt like new standards could be embraced horizontally across the web. What we've seen in the last few years is that natural or enforced monopolies of social media have made their own standards inside of walled gardens. And these standards aren't necessarily open to the interoperability that was essential for the web to grow. Now, you may have been saying to yourself, but what about the blockchain? Well, most people who say, what about the blockchain, are really saying, I don't understand the blockchain. Does it have something to do with Bitcoin? The challenge with Bitcoin is, A, it is too volatile for something that people will trade because that fake ID that you bought 10 years ago on Silk Road for $6 ended up costing you $10,000 in today's money. That's not really a microtransaction anymore. Second, it's not optimized for fast, tiny transactions. The size of the block is too big to make that easy and comfortable. So lots of people are working on new blockchain alternatives for microtransactions. But the problem, which is the opposite of what American Airlines did when they invented frequent flyer miles, the problem is we don't want multiple formats, difficult technology, for micropayments, that the magic of buying a newspaper for a nickel is everyone has nickels in their pocket. Everyone knows what a nickel is. Once you get a nickel, it's easy to trade in a nickel for food. But once we start creating these arcane systems that are hard to get into, not that easy to use, and very difficult to understand, we've put barriers in between us and the micropayments that would enable people to create interesting forms of content for a living that aren't based on interrupting people with ads. So I don't have the answer for you today. I think it's worth thinking about what happens if we transform the people who are reading our content from the victims of ads to the actual customer, to the person who is actually paying, not just with their attention, but with an easy-to-use, easy-to-transport micropayment. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question from a previous episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... 
And that completes my question. Got a juicy question from Canada this week. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Tim from Manitoba, Canada. My question is this. Among other things, I am an author and I have one book out there and it's not exactly like any other book I know of. Um, I'm also self-published, which means I need to advertise it myself. And one way of advertising a self-published book is to find other readers of similar authors. But I don't know of any other similar authors. So my question is, how do I find my tribe if my tribe doesn't exist yet? Thanks. So I'm going to broaden this a little bit, but books are a great place to start. Here's the deal. All books that are worth publishing are a little different. Almost no books are a lot different. They have so many things in common, the same 26 letters, the same approximate number of pages, the same idea that there are words in a row. The question is, in which genre does someone think your book belongs? Because people almost never read a book in a genre that doesn't exist. They have to have an anchor, a way to understand what they're bumping into. So Dr. Seuss pioneered a genre, and it is possible to be adjacent to a Dr. Seuss book without copying a Dr. Seuss book. We know what it's for. My hunch is that if we leave out the fact that your plot or your approach or your language doesn't exactly mirror another book, we still know what it's for might be to change our mind about something. It might be to show our status. It might be to amuse us. It might be to thrill us. It might be to pass the time. Books have a what's it for, and so do so many other things that we seek to create. And then the second half, the desire to, quote, find our tribe. The thing is, almost nobody has a tribe. It's very unusual for there to be a group of people who define themselves as being in your orbit. Maybe the Grateful Dead had a tribe, but even there, not so much. Because what happens is we get to show up and narrate for a tribe that already exists. The kind of people who picked up a J.K. Rowling book were already a kind of people. They already had a fellowship among them. And when J.K. Rowling stops writing books, there will be other people who will write for a group that wants to share that sort of experience and that sort of conversation. The San Diego Comic-Con, the legendary convention, it didn't change year after year when the movies changed or when the comics changed. The tribe remains. And so your opportunity is to find a group of people who are already connected and who need something new to talk about. And if it turns out that after they encounter your book and they don't want to talk about it, there's really only two choices. Find a new group or write a different book. Because we are here for them. They are not here for us. And our opportunity is to narrate the journey for them. The opportunity is to create bits of intellectual property or stories or items that people can touch, feel, and encounter that give them fuel on a journey they have already decided to go on. We don't have the leverage to change people's minds. But what we do have is that once someone has a compass, 
we might be able to give them a better map. We might be able to give them a password, a code word, a key, a way to enter into community with the people they've been seeking to connect with. So that's not easy, and that's why out of the million books that are published every year, only a hundred, maybe a thousand, end up being books for the ages for a group. Because there are lots and lots of groups. We need to pick our group and figure out how to be there for them in the way that they need us. Good luck with your novel, especially the next one. Thanks for calling in. We'll see everybody next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.